0: Amen. I want to also just uh, echo greeting for our guests. It's great to have you here. If you're here for the first time or you've been coming out for uh, a little bit of time, uh, it's just good to have you. Good to have you. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you uh, experience something from the Lord here. It's great to have Stevie Paris back. Come right back there. There he is. Back from Seattle and all things left coast. Uh, it's just great to be with the folks today. I have designated 2017 as the year of learning the blues guitar. Um, (laughs) Well, here's an important thing. Here's an important thing. If you think I've chosen to do this because I have talent, you only have to talk to my family who has to listen to me practice every day. So it's not about talent. I'm if there's flat line of talent and life support, I'm somewhere in the middle between the two. Um, In fact, I can only tell you that the idea to play the blues guitar has something to do with what I envision my life to be like when I'm 85 years old. Uh, But to take you any deeper into why I'm doing it, I would have to take you into a level of my thinking that I don't even like to go into. So, I'm choosing to play. And actually the first few lessons, I downloaded this a program that, that could teach you how to play. Um, and the first few lessons were going really well. And then I confronted my lack of talent. My want to ran into a can't do. And when something like that happens when something I'm trying to do stops being easy, stops feeling natural, then I start to wonder if it's worth it to keep going. But I realize that if I don't press beyond what's comfortable, then I'll be able to say, I tried to learn the blues guitar, but I'll never be able to say, I play blues guitar. Now, that's the way it is with most things in life. Conquering bad habits is like that. Exercise is like that. Diet is like that. Learning a new job is like that. Praying is like that. The difference in trying to do something and actually doing something is what happens when we hit the wall of what's comfortable and natural. Relationships are like that. Nowhere... Is this truer than in what we all value most, which is love? When we face relational difficulties, when it stops being natural to love other people, when it's not comfortable to love other people, we can start to wonder, is it worth it? Do I really want to do this? But yet we know that we're supposed to love. When asked what the greatest thing someone could ever do is, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. The greatest thing you can ever do. Apostle Paul echoes it when he says in 1 Corinthians 13, that no matter what you do in life, if you don't have love, you don't have anything. Love is the great difference maker in life. Now, we may not all want to play the blues guitar, but we would probably say we all want to love. At least, that's what we say. But then it gets hard. We hit a wall where it's hard to love. Where someone has done something to us that makes it hard to love them. People are hard to love sometimes. People fail you. People mistreat you. They ignore you. They speak against you. They hurt you. To protect ourselves, we build these walls. One of the things I love, Matthew and I didn't have a chance to talk about this message this week, but he drew out these images of walls and how God wants to tear down walls. Well, that's actually what I'm talking about today. But I'm talking right now about the walls we build, the walls we intentionally build. We build them with offenses and hurts and fear and self-protection. And you can't love other people if you live behind that kind of wall. You can say you tried love, but you can't say you actually love. So today we're going to look at how to get beyond that wall, the wall of our own limits to love and desire to love, ultimately through the work of forgiveness. Forgiveness is what we do when we've been hurt and there's someone to blame, if we want to love. Forgiveness is what must happen when love hits a wall. Forgiveness is the difference between being someone who tried to love and gave it up and someone who truly loves other people. Let's pray. Father, this is a heavy but significant topic, Lord. I know even as I'm speaking, even as I'm preparing, there are people here who are already tensing up. Lord, they are aware of things that they've experienced or maybe continuing to experience. And to talk about forgiveness is something that just pierces them. And I pray, oh God, that you would allow them to have open hearts for this next few minutes, Lord, that you would allow them to consider something beyond their experience, Lord, that that your word would open their hearts, Lord, that Your Word that would speak grace to them, that Your Word would speak hope to them, that Your Word would speak faith to them, that Your Word would speak love to them, that they may not live behind walls of hurt, but learn to live in the freedom of the love of Christ. I ask this, take place in the next 30 minutes or so that we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. Now in just a few verses, the Apostle Paul, in this text that Bill read, gives us a grace-designed pathway to a truly loving life. We're going to take a little bit of time to just walk this path verse by verse. So we're going to start with verse 12. Let's look at that again. Verse 12, Paul writes, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. The first thing we see is that love is not a feeling or an emotion, contrary to what Every song from R&B to country wants to tell you, feelings don't make relationships work. We're dropping into this letter where Paul has been giving some very specific instructions about how to live in relationships as people under God. The picture in this verse is someone needing to do something, but they need to be clothed in order to do it. They need the right kind of clothes, the right kind of uniform to be able to do it. Firefighter needs firefighting uniform to be able to do their job. If you're in the hospital. You wear scrubs because that's what you need to wear to do the job. It's the same principle here. Paul knows how hard it is to do relationships. He was done wrong lots of times. He's calling them to put on, in that verse, to put on literally to clothe themselves with the right clothes for the hard work of relationships. Now, you might say, well, I don't really need to wear those clothes because I'm not all that interested in loving people. I'm an introvert. I'm a loner. I'm an engineer. I don't need people. I need cats. Whatever. Love is not a personality type. It's about a personal relationship with God. The people who put on the clothes of love do it because they're chosen and dearly loved. There's something about you that's happened to you that then makes you want to put on these clothes. See, God doesn't Look for loving people. He doesn't choose loving people and says, you'll be mine. He takes unloving people and says, I'm going to make you love others. That's what we all are. We are by nature unloving. In fact, we're self-loving. If we love anybody, we love ourselves. And God, in, in grabbing hold of our lives and choosing us and and. and Showering His love on us and setting us up to live a life that pleases Him. He says, I want to reverse that. I want to help you love others. Now, do you see yourself that way? Do you see yourself as someone who's loved by God? If you don't, it's going to be hard to get over those walls that you need to get over in order to love people in hard places. I know some good Christian people who really struggle with this. They they don't feel chosen and dearly loved. They know that Jesus died for their sins, but they have trouble with whether God loves them. It's almost like they say, I know Jesus died for me, but how do I know God loved me? It's hard to do the work of love if you don't have confidence in God's love for you? The Bible gives an answer here, and I'm going to take you into that answer a bit. I'm not going to have a time to really unpack this, but I want to kind of drop it into your thinking. Those who think, I understand that Jesus died for sinners, but I don't understand how God can love me. Here's the question. Who sent Jesus to die for you? Did Jesus just say, you know what? There's a bunch of sinners they need to be died for. I'm going to go down and die for them. This is what John says in his first letter, 1 John 3. It was actually quoted briefly earlier. In this is love, beginning in verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. We'll get to that love one another part, but notice the driving force that put Jesus on the cross was the love of God for you. The love of the Father sent Jesus. Both John here and Paul in Colossians, as we're reading, base our call to love on the fact that the Father has loved us. Now, does Jesus love you? Yes, He does. This is the Trinity. This is the Godhead. The love is full Trinitarian love. But the Bible places the motivation to pay for your sins in the love of the Father for you. God loved the world so much that He sent His Son so that those who receive Him would not die but have everlasting life. God has proven His love for you through Jesus. Don't stop with Jesus on the cross. Jesus on the cross points back to a love that sent Jesus there in the first place. So if you struggle with the love of God, don't just stop, look at the cross, look through the cross to the love of a Father who sent His only Son. To die for you. Because we are chosen and holy and beloved by God, Paul is saying, we can love others. So, what about this outfit that we're supposed to wear? He says, Clothe yourselves, put this on. If you're going to love others, you need to put on, what did he say, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness. We're not going to unpack those individually. They're grouped together. It's an ensemble. It's not a pair of pants. It's a Complete outfit. Complete workup. What we do know is this is what we need for the hard work of love. What makes this ensemble work is that every piece is designed to help us love others. If this is what we're wearing, we're going to find it possible to help us love others. We're going we're to be able to love people if we're wearing this. Think about it. Actually, if you're compassionate and kind and humble and meek and patient, you're not going to make a ton of enemies. You're going to be pretty easy to get along with, aren't you? And my guess is that if you're compassionate and kind and humble and meek and patient, people aren't going to tick you off that often. You're just not going to get all worked up when things don't go your way. When people don't treat you like you deserve. When someone cuts you off in traffic, you're not going to start to boil. It's not even going to matter to you. You just slow down and move around. Now, let's make a quick point that might help some folks here. The language of putting on something is maybe familiar to do. We 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 were in Ephesians this this time last year, and we dropped into a a section in Ephesians 6. Remember, if you're familiar with it, Paul talks about put on the armor of God. A lot of us are familiar with that. The the passage about the armor of God. Put on the armor of God. Then he lays out the armor, kind of like he does here, laying out this. It's a different kind of clothes, it's a different set of, it's a different outfit. What's the purpose of that outfit? The purpose of that outfit is to is to prepare you to deal with the attacks of the enemy, spiritual dimension enemy, the devil himself, evil. We need to fight it. We need to fight it off. Now, here's a question. Maybe if you find that you have trouble in relationships, Maybe you're wearing the wrong clothes. Maybe when you find it hard to love people, you put on the armor as if they're the enemy. Paul says, wait, there's a place for that outfit. It'll come in handy, but I'm laying out your clothes. This is what I want you to wear. When it comes to people, you don't put on the armor. When it comes to people, you put on compassion. You put on meekness. You put on humility. You put on kindness. You put on patience. Let Paul, by the Holy Spirit, dress you the way you need to be dressed. So we're going to look here. How do we do this? We've seen that we put on these clothes, but Paul says, okay. There's more to that than this. In verse 13, um, you see he says, Forbear with others. Actually, verse 13 is two different calls. First, Paul says to bear with one another. Sometimes, even compassion, kindness, humbleness, meekness, patience, even that doesn't keep you from getting rubbed the wrong way. So, what do you do then? You strike back, you withdraw. You get out the armor, you go nuclear, you air it out on social media or in a text. See, the Bible gives us this wonderful option. When when you get provoked, just bear with the other person. Just bear with them. Forbearing means essentially this. When I'm forbearing with someone, what I'm communicating, what I'm doing is that Who you are and what you're doing has no determining effect on who I am and what I'm doing. I have a higher call. I'm called to love. What you're doing doesn't doesn't draw me into your mess. I have a call to love. If I'm going to respond to you, it's it's not because of what you're doing. It's because of what God wants me to do. I don't need to get dragged into this. This often happens when you find that there's somebody who just, just by virtue of who they are, kind of bothers you, you know? Um, We've had those people. I used to work with a guy before I was a pastor who, he was a nice guy, but he just didn't do his job right, and he wasted a lot of time, and as a result, I ended up having to do a lot of his job, and I'd hear him in the other office, and he'd be talking to his buddy on the phone about something else, and... And I'd be like, you're, you know, and I knew that I was going to end up taking his work. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with him as a person, but, man, he just made my life hard. And I, and I just, I get irritated. I'd sit in my office and I'd see. And I'd dream about going in and throwing the phone at him. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I just dreamed about, you know, you have these, you have these moments where you just kind of go after somebody and you're just there. And, and God spoke to me He said, who are you, Slick? And uh, that's kind of what he said to me. Um, that's how God speaks to me. Uh, but I, I, I realized, okay, you know what? This guy has an inordinate influence on my life. I go home thinking about him. I don't think he goes home thinking about me. So you know what? Let me just let me just bear with him. You know, it'll all work out, and it did. He got fired. <laughs> But, you know what, I, you know, it's funny, when he got fired, I wasn't like overjoyed. I was like, well, you know, I think he'll learn his lesson. I think he'll do fine. He's a smart guy. But I found that I wasn't wrapped up in his world. I was, his drama didn't become my drama. You can forbear with people. It's a wonderful gift. This kind of love isn't easy. It's kind of forbearing love isn't easy. Particularly if that person who rubs you the wrong way is your spouse. It can be hard, or if it's one of your children, or if it's another family member. It's really valuable, and it is wise to learn how to forbear because forbearance, frankly, keeps you out of a lot of stress and aggravation. When I see people who are stressed out, I can tell pretty much they're taking offense at almost everything that comes their way. Everybody's against them. People who forbear, frankly, you just live a better life. You just live a better life. You don't have to right every wrong. You don't have to have justice everywhere you look. Just let it go. Just let it go. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it's his, to His glory for one to overlook an offense. It works. It works. Your life is simpler if you don't get upset by everybody. But sometimes that's not enough. Sometimes putting on the clothing of love doesn't keep you from being hurt. Sometimes forbearing others isn't an option because of what's happened. Sometimes you can't ignore it. Sometimes people do things to us that hit us hard and hurt, hit us deep. And that's when we tend to want to build up the walls. Now, we'll all be faced with this toughest part of love, the call to forgive. I'm going to spend the rest of our time here on this idea of forgiveness. I wanted to set it up because I wanted you to recognize that there's a lot you can do in love before you have to get to forgiveness, but eventually, you have to get to forgiveness. Paul says, Eventually, you will need to forgive. If you're going to love, you'll need to forgive. So, verse 13. Um, it's the second part of that verse, we saw that we said forbear with one another. And then verse 13, the second part says, if one has a complaint against another forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Now there are three clauses in there that we're going to break apart and look at. And they're going to help us get over this wall that we want to set up of fear and offense so that we can love others. The first clause basically is, talks about the need to forgive. There's a need of forgiveness. Paul talks as if the need to forgive is so common that nobody's exempt from getting hurt of being wrong, that kind of language. He's saying, listen, this is happening all over the place. You have a complaint against him. He has a complaint against you. Everybody's got complaints against everybody. What do you do? You need to forgive. You need to, you need to resolve it, deal with it, and move on. Jesus said we need to be prepared to forgive people." over and over and over, 70 times 7. That's not, you know, you don't get to 70 times 7 and then say, okay, I don't have to forgive anymore. The idea is not there's a finite number. The idea is an unlimited number of times you're going to have to forgive or ways you're going to have to forgive. 70 times 7 is a lot of forgiving. The point Paul is making here when he talks like this is basically this is forgiveness should be common in the church. If forgiveness is rare in the church, then love, by definition, is rare in the church. When you say, we want to be a loving church, you better be prepared to forgive, because that's where it has to go. Loving is not just we like each other. Loving isn't just we're all together, we're all the same. We all, we all sit in the pews, fade the same direction. Love in the hard places is offense and forgiveness if it's going to happen at all. Now, the best way for forgiveness to happen is for there to be a person who acknowledges that they're wrong, and that's a whole other issue, and there's a whole other sermon in here about How do you acknowledge when you're wrong and seek forgiveness? Don't have time to go there. Dealing with the idea that we have to be able to forgive people. I always say you want people to... And Sometimes you have to confront people. You have to go to them and say, listen, I don't know if you realize this, but what you did hurt. It it may have been a sin against me. and Give them a chance to, to ask for forgiveness. And when that happens it can be relatively easy to forgive, but often that doesn't happen. Somebody doesn't come to you or they don't see it the way you see it or they, they, you're not able to get hold of them or you're not, maybe even they don't live anymore. And I, at this point, I am so aware, so aware that I can't over, oversimplify this. This idea that we need to be forgiving It would be great if every person who's wronged us comes to us and says, Please forgive me. It's much messier than that. I know some of the situations in this room, it's much messier than that. And so I'm not going to try to treat forgiveness like it's just something we do. It's deep, it's profound, but it's necessary. What does it happens when it isn't easy to forgive? It isn't possible. The person doesn't come to us and ask for forgiveness. Let me just say this. This is where we need to have gospel-shaped hearts. Where, Where the gospel shapes how we view life And how we view others. You see, what shapes our hearts controls our lives. And if the offense of someone else shapes your life, it will control it. We need the gospel to shape our hearts be a Christian is to be forgiven by God. That's the essence of being a Christian. We are forgiven by God. Not because of what we've done, but because of what God's done for us. Your sins against God have been forgiven by His death for you. This is not something we seek or earn. It's the free gift of grace from the God who so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Forgiveness starts with God and moves toward us. A gospel-shaped heart recognizes that It's because I have been forgiven much, I can begin to forgive others. The motivation doesn't start with me wanting to love others. It starts with God wanting to love me and forgiving me. And because I'm forgiven, I then want to mirror God's love for me to forgive others. If we're going to forgive others, we must have that heart. We need to prepare every day for future opportunities to forgive. Trust me, if you wait until you hear someone's confession and want that to motivate you to forgive, you will never hear a confession that makes you want to forgive. You just won't. If you're ever going to truly forgive, you need to be prepared to hear confession. You need to be leaning toward, there's nothing, if I've sinned against someone, if that person has decided, well, until you say the right thing, until you say it the right way, until you say everything I need you to say, you're not getting forgiveness from me, there is nothing I'll ever say that will will motivate confession, forgiveness, because forgiveness is never motivated by the confession of others. Forgiveness is motivated by the forgiveness of God for us. On the basis of that forgiveness of others, I can begin to hope and look for something from someone that will give me the opportunity to begin to extend forgiveness. My posture, that's a gospel-shaped heart. If you've allowed the gospel of grace for you to shape your heart, then you'll find more likely than not you're ready to forgive when the opportunity comes. So there's also then, number two, a motive of forgiveness. Paul says, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. The words translated forgive here is not just the release of a debt. There's different words that the Bible uses for forgiveness, and one of the words is just the release of a debt. That's not the word that's being used here. It's something more. It has, in some sense, more to do with the extension of mercy, the extension of grace. Forgiveness is the extension of something. If you read current therapeutic writing on forgiveness, there's one thing that really stands out. People are told they need to forgive in order to get free from the negative effect of someone on their life. Maybe you've been to counseling. Maybe that's what you've been told. You need to forgive because, because this lack of forgiveness has a negative effect on your life. One writer says it like this, when you Hold resentment toward one another or toward another. You're bound to that person or condition by an emotional link that's stronger than steel. Forgiveness is the only way to dissolve that link and get free. And that's true. That's true. If you are unforgiving, then you are bound by the bitterness toward another person that results from that. And good counselors want to help you get free of that. And in the world, there are a lot of good counselors who will help you do that. But let me say that. This is not where the Bible leaves it. This is not where the Bible focuses forgiveness. It's a good thing. It's not the ultimate goal. We don't forgive ultimately for our freedom But for the freedom of the person who's wronged us. Think about it this way God didn't forgive you because your sin against Him was holding Him down. He's not there saying, until until I forgive them, I'm stuck because they don't come and ask me for forgiveness. It was because of your sin holding you down, that God forgave you. God's concern was not what you were doing for Him. His concern was what it was happening to you. Sin was death for you. Sin was judgment for you. God had a remedy for His own, the the offenses against Him. It's called judgment. That's His remedy. He solves the problem of your sin against Him by judgment. Judgment. What he did in forgiveness is says, I will take that judgment and I'm going to place it on somebody who can bear it for you, my own son. The motivation for God to forgive is because you need to be released, not him. It's our bondage of sin that was at stake. Jesus was sent to redeem us, to Reconcile us to the Father. Because the issue isn't just, I want freedom here. God's intention is renewed relationship. God's intention is that we, something happens after forgiveness. Something new, something fresh, something that is unexplainable, apart from forgiveness of God. Pastor J.D. Greer says it like this. What makes forgiveness so life-changing isn't simply that it makes us guilt-free. It's that forgiveness reconciles us to God. The world's best imitation of forgiveness can only say, you may go. But God's forgiveness says, please come near. The gospel is a message of reconciliation releasing us from our sin, so that we can come close to God, the sole source of all joy once again. To truly love, to truly forgive, we must have a view, not simply that a person's wrong against us no longer affects us, but that we see some way forward. We have some vision some hope where we can actually live at peace with the person who hurt us. Third, the non-negotiable of forgiveness, you must also forgive. In the way God forgives, you must also forgive, Paul says. That's a command. That's an imperative. We're faced, when we're faced with the need to forgive, There aren't many options. You can either forgive or you cannot forgive. There is no middle ground. There is no maybe someday I might consider it. You either forgive or you do not forgive. But if we don't forgive, we haven't solved the problem. We've actually made it far worse. If you have become comfortable, and I think there are people here who, if you think about it, you are comfortable Saying, if not with your mouth, in your heart, I won't forgive. I'm not going to forgive. Whatever it is, I'm not speculating what the situation is, but you've postured your heart, I will not forgive. There's a warning from your Savior Matthew 6, 14, and 15. If you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's coming from the mouth of the One who died for your sins. See, if you have chosen to not forgive, then you are declaring to God with your actions, and your heart, and your words, that the cross is a worthless thing. That you don't need it. That it is irrelevant to you. For the cross to have relevance for you, it needs to have relevance in you. The good news is that we don't have to get there all at once. In fact, it's dangerous to be emotionally driven to forgive. I've been in situations where someone has confessed that something to another person, and there's a welling up of, of goodwill and feelings and relief and a desire and an emotional response. Of course I forgive you. How could I not forgive you? And I'm often saying, listen, stop, 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 stop. I appreciate the feelings. Appreciate that this feels very releasing and very happy, but you're about to make a statement that's going to obligate you to a life, and you need to be prepared for the life, not just the moment. So we're going to slow it down. We're going to make sure we understand when we say, I forgive you, what we really mean, that it really is releasing somebody. In one sense, and I can't go into this too much, in one sense, forgiveness is saying There is pain from what happened. What you did caused me pain. From this moment on, I want you to have no pain from this. And if there is pain, I'll take it. I'll take it. I never want you to look at me and wonder if what you did still affects me. I'll work out the pain. You go free. That's what we're saying. That's why we need to be careful. We don't get there sometimes right away. It isn't an emotional experience. It's a commitment to a process, to the hard work of love towards someone who's hurt us. It's like starting a journey, usually a small step at a time. Sometimes the difference between forgiveness and unforgiveness is simply whether we're willing to work one day at at a time to tear down the walls of bitterness and hurt to clear a path. Block by block, I'm committed. This wall is getting no higher. Today, I start tearing it down. Today, block by block, it comes down. And my hope is one day, if not in this life, certainly in the life to come, there is no wall between us. There is only a path. And we can walk the path together. Often how the other person responds to the, or, or the circumstances you're in will limit how you're able to move forward with that person. But you can always start the process. In verse 14, Paul reminds us of how we start. We put on love. When in doubt, put on love. It binds everything together. Love covers a multitude of sins, it's also said. We start, if our posture is not to love others, then we can't start tearing down the wall. So, Lord, help me to love. The cry of the person who's faced with needing to forgive somebody else is simply this, Lord. How do I love? How do I love them? What does love look like in this difficult situation? I'm not saying go do something. I'm not saying go and make it easy for the other person. I'm not saying take take away all the consequences of their actions. I don't know in your situation what you need to do, but I know if you simply say, I'm not going to forgive, you're, the wall will just get higher and higher. We put on love. No matter what's happened to you, make the decision. I'm going to put on love. One of the things we recognize about the walls we create is they don't just affect the person who sinned against us. Anyone who looks anywhere familiar to the person who sinned against us gets that wall as well. That's what racial walls are all about. You don't have to be that person. You just have to look like him. You just have to act like him. And the wall goes up. Just commit. I want to start the journey of forgiveness. And there's nothing anyone can do to stop me. Nobody can stop you from tearing down the wall of forgiveness but yourself. I want to close with an illustration. A friend of mine, her name is Diane. I met her in an arts retreat. Um, she, uh, she tells a story. She actually wrote a book about this. Her son, um, in his mid-20s, and he uh, was working uh, at a, uh, an amphitheater in California. And there was a woman who worked there who was fearful of going home because her husband was abusive and she didn't want to go home and face him. And so the young man stopped, said, listen, I'll sit with you. Sat in the car next to her, in a different car. I'll sit with you until you decide what you want to do. And uh, husband drove up. She drove away. Husband saw him. Apparently, he tried to reason with him, started to walk away. Uh, I shot him three times in the back of the head, killed him. This woman, Diane, in another country, she gets the news that her son's been murdered. And it sets, as you can imagine, and some of you here have experiences where you're familiar with this, on several years of anguish and grief and anger and bitterness. But she began to wrestle with God. She began to wrestle with these texts. She began to wrestle with this idea of what is forgiveness. And God began to work on her heart. And she began to realize that if forgiveness is real, if the gospel is real, it has has to apply here specifically. I can't eliminate this one because it's too hard. I need to do something. And so she she wrestled with God's word, and that's what we do. We wrestle with God's word. We wrestle with the gospel. She began to take the claims of the gospel seriously for her and therefore for others. And, and her husband began to do the same thing. And they came to a realization that they had to do it differently. They had to get beyond it. They had to tear down the wall. The man was in prison. And so they began to pray for him. And out of prayer that led them to want to write to him to tell him about what they were learning. And so they sent him a letter in prison. And they didn't know it, but God had been working on this man and had shown him his true guilt. And he responded and asked for forgiveness. Their hearts were prepared. Work over time. So that when they got that letter they didn't just feel good that he, got, he, he knew he was wrong. They were already prepared to know what forgiveness looks like. And so they sent him another letter. And they began a correspondence to the point to where he became a believer. And now they have a brother who killed their son. And they began to Corresponding with him as a brother. And that's gone on. And she writes about it in the book. And she writes about her experience with God in the process. And the most recent thing she wrote about it, I'll just share this with you. She's talking about this journey of forgiveness. And she says this, The journey isn't over. God continues to write the story. The correspondence has continued between myself and Martin. He remains in prison. But his spirit is free. She sent him a copy of the book, which included his story of killing her son. He's used my book as his basis for his first mini-sermon in prison. He readily shares my book with the other inmates and guards. He's made me a mini-pulpit from lightweight wood for my Bible. He asked me to use it whenever I tell our story of forgiveness. What's happened? This story of pain and hurt and anger and bitterness and horrible, horrible grief has become a story of our forgiveness. He writes that he loves me and I can fully accept it. Last Christmas he wrote, Your family is my family now. It's God at work, she says. Last spring, God gave me a a view of the future. This vision wasn't expected or sought after, but it was confirmed by my husband having a very similar one at the same time. We're standing and singing a simple song of gratitude to God, Jesus, thank you, the song we sang in our little inner city church. As we repeated the phrase, once your enemy now seated at your table a clear picture began to form in my mind at first was me a sinner an enemy of god now invited as a beloved child to his table like a kaleidoscope the picture kept changing as we continued to sing next it was my my dining room table replete with my husband our children their spouses and our five grandchildren a scene that we've enjoyed many times. This time, there were more people sharing this table. I clearly saw that seated with us was the man who killed our son and his children and grandchildren. The final frame clearly showed that Jesus Christ was standing at the head of the table. Once enemies of God and each other, now celebrating together at the table of our Lord. I don't know if God's going to allow this ever to happen in real life, but I know that it was a clear promise from God that He continues to work in our lives and in the life of Martin's family. I've shared this vision with Martin, and we are praying that it'll be fulfilled. The power of forgiveness, this is how she ends, the power of forgiveness and the reconciliation that can only come from God. Steve Saint says, God never wastes a hurt if we allow Him to write it into our story. God is writing a story that can only be written by Him. Only He deserves the praise and the glory. I do not know what may be next in this story, but I'm confident that it will continue to be amazing. Now, is closing in the providence of god this week i've been preparing this message and it literally every day i've encountered somebody where i've listened to the story of indescribable pain by the sins of others every single day, God has been dealing with me over this because this is not something we talk about. flippantly. This is holy ground, folks. And God's been saying, don't you treat it like it's easy. Don't you treat it like you can send people out of this room and they'll go do it. That somehow just because you said they need to, they should go. And so I live right now here in the fear of God. Because there's nothing I can say here to change anything. I don't want you to be bound in bitterness and hurt. I want you to be free. I want your story to be written by God in a different way than it's been written so far. I can't make that happen. I can't make you do anything. It is not my heart to get you to an emotional place. I simply want to lay out the hope. All things are possible. All things are possible in Christ. Paul said, when in doubt, put on love. If you can't do anything else, put on love. Because love is the game changer. Dr. King said, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. And forgiveness is the key that unlocks that door. Just a few practical things in closing. What do you do if you feel like, yes, I need to do this, I need to move, I need to begin to take down this wall, I need to begin to to deal with my, my hardened heart, I need to open myself up to the pain in order to find the peace? Just a few quick things. One is prepare to forgive. Ask yourself, what shapes my heart? Are you shaped Is your heart shaped by pain? Is your heart shaped by the wrongs done to you? Is your heart shaped by horrific memories? God wants to reshape your heart with the gospel. Over time, over time. It took Diane years, and it's still a process. But when a heart is reshaped around the gospel, then love is shed abroad to others. So prepare. Read about the gospel. Maybe some of you here, your hearts are too shaped by politics right now. Maybe your hearts are too shaped by injustice right now. Maybe your hearts are too shaped by fear right now. Maybe your hearts are too shaped by the world right now. Shape your heart around the gospel. Second, pray. Pray to forgive. One of the things Diane talks about is one of the hardest steps she had to take was to pray. Up until the moment that she started to pray, this man had no name to her. He was just the monster. When she talked about him, he was just the monster, the monster who killed our son. That's how they understood him, the monster who killed our son. To pray for him, she had to give him a name. She had to recognize that this monster was a man in need of Christ. And her heart began to break when she gave him a name. And so she prayed for him. And so maybe the step you need to take, if there's a person in mind right now, begin to pray. Begin to pray for them. And then third, practice small forgiveness. You don't do this in the big cases without having done it regularly in the small cases. The small offenses, practice forgiveness now. Learn how to do it in the petty things, in marriage conflicts, in conflict with your children, in conflict with your brother or sister, in conflict with people in the world, at your workplace? Do I know how to forgive? Do I know how to forbear? Do I know what it looks like to love people in hard places? Do it in the small opportunities and you'll find you're preparing yourself for the big ones when they come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, i This is where I've felt weak. All week, Lord, I, in some sense, dreaded this moment because I can't possibly communicate in words in ways that will make what I'm saying make sense to people whose lives have been tragically affected by the sins of others. There are no words I have. There's no vocabulary I can grasp. And so I simply ask, Holy Spirit, that you would apply your word. You do it lovingly. You don't beat people over the heads. You don't motivate by guilt. You don't press people to respond simply because it seems to be the right thing to do. Spirit of God, you lead people. You lead people to truth. You lead people to response. You, You give faith. Lord, people who are needing this message right now need faith. They need faith that you won't abandon them if they step out into vulnerability. Lord, they need hope that, that there's something beyond this, that one day this pain will be resolved. One day the tears will be wiped clean from their faces. The one day there will be... No more pain. There would be one day where true justice happens and no wrong will be left unaddressed, God, that they don't have to live pining for justice in this world because it is to be delivered in the next, oh God. And they need love. They need to know that they're loved by you that they're forgiven by You so they can begin to tear down the walls and build the path of forgiveness for their future. Do that, O Lord, for them in personal ways. In Jesus' name.